Here's a story that I've made up, but sadly, it reflects a reality that's happened many times. Pastor Mark has gone to visit Mia to talk about a sin that she doesn't seem to be acknowledging or dealing with. And as he visits her and tries to bring up this sin, he finds she doesn't want to talk about it. Instead, she wants to talk about the ways she served at church and the things that she has done and the part she's played in the church life. She's giving him the message. Keep off the subject of that sin, because, look, I'm a good Christian. And as Pastor Mark listens to her and speaks to her, he notices the Christian books on her bookshelves and the Bible there on her coffee table, looking as if it's regularly read and the missionary newsletters lying by it and he thinks to himself am I being unreasonable bringing up this sin and emphasizing it and insisting on evidence of repentance he is an upstanding member of the church it would be better if she repented of this sin but but does it really matter enough to be worth the trouble of insisting on seeing repentance Well, Hosea answers that question. And that story that I've just made up, although I've said sadly it's true in many instances, that story gives us really the issue of tonight's message. It's really all answering that question. Is it worth him insisting or should he just leave this alone? Because, look, here's an upstanding member of the church. Well, let's turn to Hosea chapter six to start to get an answer to that question. Hosea chapter six, although we're going to be in Hosea chapter six to ten this evening. We gone up to chapter six, verse three last time, a fortnight ago, and we're taking it on verse four onwards tonight. But let me just remind you first that chapters one to three gave us the main message of Hosea which was God has been like a husband to Israel, but Israel has been like an adulterous wife and God will judge Israel. She will come under judgment, but God will also love her again and take the initiative to win back his wayward cheating wife. Chapter four onwards are giving further detail on that subject, which is the subject of the whole book. And chapters four onwards gives us a lot about sin and judgment. Now, if you don't want to hear about sin and judgment, then I'm afraid to say you are saying you know better than God what we need to hear. Because there is a lot in the whole Bible, including Hosea, about sin and judgment. And God has said we need to hear about it. And he knows better than us what we need. So let's get a flavour of chapters six to ten. We're trying to cover a lot of material here, uh, but I'm just going to pick out selected verses that give you a flavour of chapters six to ten. And if it helps you to follow, there are points in the notice sheet, which you should have received by email. It tells us our points are unrepentant, but religious, leads to judgment, so repent. That's where we're going this evening. So first of all, unrepentant. That's Israel, unrepentant. As we read chapters six to ten, we get a relentless description of Israel's sin. But it's important we take it in that this is about unrepentant sin. Israel has kept sinning, 
has been warned, but dismissed the warnings and just carried on sinning, refused to acknowledge the sin or turned from it. Now, we must make sure we don't misapply this because we could just break the bruised reed or snuff out the dimly smoking wick here. If you fall for a sin and you humbly confess it to God and you turn from it and you try to put right any damage it's done to others. Even if you keep falling and keep turning and keep having to ask for forgiveness, that's not what's going on in Hosea. If that is you, for you, the Bible gives great promises of forgiveness, comfort, love and acceptance. Hosea is not written to beat up people who are struggling to turn from sin. Hosea is written to warn people who are careless about their sin and who, despite warning, think it's all going to be fine. So keep that in mind as we now see some of the descriptions of sin in chapter six to ten. There are loads of descriptions. I'll just give you a few. It's to give you a flavour, but more importantly, it's to help you and me examine ourselves for sin. Here's the first one. First description, like a mist or morning dew. Have a look at chapter six, verse four. Chapter six, verse four. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Have you ever gone up early enough on a summer's morning when it's going to be a gloriously hot day? But when you get up, there's mist around and the ground is wet with dew. And yet by 9 a.m., the sun has burnt it all away and it's baking hot and it's unimaginable that there was this mist and that the ground had been so wet. That's the description in chapter six, verse four of Israel's love. It, it evaporates so quickly. Now, is there anyone here and your love for God is like that? Were you enthusiastic for God when you were young, burning with love when you were first hearing the gospel? And now it's evaporated. And yes, you're keeping up appearances. Here you are tonight. But there's no heart in it anymore. It's just keeping up appearances. It's just going through a show. That was one of the sins of Israel. Is it yours? Here's another uh, description of what sin can be like. Setting up your own king. Chapter eight, verse four. Chapter eight, verse four. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. We'll see in a minute that Israel was still religious. But when it comes to government, politics, economics, how we run the nation, well, God can mind his own business. We'll decide for ourselves. Keep God in his religious box for the things that really matter. We'll decide for ourselves. We'll set our own rules. Now, again, is that you? Is that you? Keep God in his religious box when it comes to work, leisure, what you do Monday to Saturday, maybe even what you do most of Sunday. Well, that's not God's business. You'll decide that. Do you set your own rules? Here's a here's a rule that many people set for themselves. Be true to yourself. 
So many films, so many TV programs, the main character hits a dilemma, comes under pressure to do something. What's he going to do? The lesson of the film is never, well, unless it's some niche Christian film, certainly with a mainstream film, the lesson of the film is never obey God. The lesson is nearly always be true to yourself. Where did that come from? (laughs) It's coming from people who don't even know who yourself is. Who are we? You see, we make up our own rules. We choose our own rulers. That was Israel. Is that you? Here's another description of sin. It's a rather strange one. Chapter eight, verse seven. Trusting in a nothing. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Very famous phrase. For the moment, we'll just look at the first half. They sow the wind. Now, children who are with us, have you ever planted a seed? How do you plant a seed? Oh, you get your trowel, you dig your hole in the ground, you put the seed in, you cover it over, you water it and you wait. Imagine doing this. You get your trowel, you dig your hole, you blow into it. It's got a bit of wind in it, a bit of air. Cover it over, water it and wait. What are you going to grow? What's that going to grow for you? Nothing, isn't it? It's going to grow nothing. You've planted a nothing, just a bit of wind, and you will grow nothing. You're trusting in a nothing. And that is the picture here of sin. Sin is trusting in a nothing. Think. Let's think of a couple of sins. If you gossip, if you look at those bad pictures on the Internet, what are you doing? You are trusting that gossip will make me happy. Saying that thing will make me happy. Looking at those pictures, that will make me happy. You're trusting in a nothing. Those words of gossip, those pixels of the screen, they're a nothing. Do they have the power to give you happiness? That's like planting wind and expecting to grow a fruitful pear tree. You're trusting in a nothing. Here's one more description. We'll move into chapter nine. And it's this sin results in sinking deep and loving what is vile. Chapter nine, verses nine and ten. They have sunk deep into corruption, as in the days of Gibeah. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig trees. But when they came to Baal Peel, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. It's significant that this refers to two events in Israel's history, which were both events of gross sexual immorality. Gibeah and Baal Peel. Afterwards, you might like to look them up in your Old Testament and find out, although they are disturbing reading, especially Gibeah, times of gross sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is a good example of what we've got going on here. It tends to draw us in more. It tends to sink us down deeper and deeper into corruption. Anyone who's got hooked on those pictures on the Internet knows that. Until we're loving what is vile and then becoming like it ourselves. Well, there I've just given you a few of the many descriptions of sin in chapters six to ten. 
And I've given them to help us diagnose ourselves. But as you do diagnose yourself, remember this. Hosea is a warning to those not repenting. So consider what you've just heard, but consider also your reaction to it. If it's shown up any sin in you, what do you do? Do you brush that aside because you want to cling to it? Or do you face up to it so you can turn from it? I haven't shown you all the sins that are here. Of course, there are far more many, uh, far more. So the issue isn't just can you see any of these in you? The issue is what do you do when you see sin in you? Israel was unrepentant. And then secondly, Israel was unrepentant, but religious because there's so much description of sin here in Hosea. You might miss that Israel is still very religious. And I don't just mean the religion of idol worship. There was some acknowledgement of God. I'll give you some examples from these chapters. First of all, they pray. Chapter seven, verse 14. 7 verse 14, they pray. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. They gather together for grain and new wine. That's doing the sacrificing. But turn away from me. They pray and their prayers sound fervent. They sound, well, they are emotional, but it's the emotion of self-preoccupation. It's a self-pitying wail. Just venting how they're feeling. It's not always wrong to vent how you feel to God, but they're not really seeking him. They're not desiring him. They're not praying with confidence. He is the answer. Yes, they pray. But there's something wrong at heart. And here's another way they're religious. They say the right thing. Chapter eight, verse two. Israel cries out to me. Oh, our God, we acknowledge you. They say the right thing. They say, Lord, you're our God. We acknowledge you are God. We know you. We're your people, aren't we? But their lives show differently. It's really another version of something Jesus said in Matthew 7. Can you think of a parallel that Jesus said in Matthew 7? Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my father in heaven. You see, Jesus had the same message as Hosea. There are people who say the right thing, but their lives show, no, they're not my people. And then they they even engage in religious activity. Chapter eight, verse 11. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, These have become altars for sinning. There's actually a pun here in the Hebrew. They've built many altars for sinning and they've become altars for sinning. They were supposed to be altars for dealing with sinning. They're supposed to be altars for getting rid of your guilt. But they don't get rid of their guilt because they just embolden them to sin more. Oh, it doesn't matter if we sin, we can offer a sacrifice. Oh, it doesn't matter if I sin again, I can offer another sacrifice. They've turned God's grace into an excuse to Carry on sinning. And the reason for it isn't far away. It's in verse 12. I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something alien. This is so relevant to us. They, they thought, 
they've got the law of God, but oh, it's so detailed and it seems so foreign and it seems so far off. Surely if we just we think we're doing the right thing, we're right at heart, aren't we? So they think instead of taking notice, what does God's law say? He's the one who says what we must do. And the result is their religious activity will not wipe out their guilt. Verse 13 is such bad news. Verse 13, they offer sacrifices given to me and they eat the meat, but the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. That's the worst thing you could have said about you. God will remember your wickedness. The sacrifice has not wiped it out. Because they're unrepentant. Just one more way to show they are still religious. They call themselves by the right name. Chapter 10, verse 15. Thus it will happen to you, O Bethel. They call their place of worship Bethel, which is the house of God. What a great name. It's no surprise many churches are called Bethel. It's a really good name. House of God. But sadly, God says in chapter 10, verse five, really, it's Beth Avon, the house of wickedness. They call it Beth El, the house of God. He says, no, it's Beth Avon, the house of wickedness. And whatever you might call it, it doesn't change its character. So I will wipe it out. Unrepentant, but religious. Now, let's apply this to ourselves. Are there things you say to yourself? to excuse holding on to sin and to avoid repenting of it. Are there things you say to yourself like it will be all right because I've I've served in this church for years. I must be a good Christian. I read the Bible and pray regularly. I'm not just a Christian. I'm, I'm a minister. I'm saying this to myself because I know my tendency. I'm or I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. I'm a teacher in the Sunday school. I'm not just one of those once on a Sunday type Christians. Do you have these things you say to yourself and so you reassure yourself? God will overlook this sin that you're clinging on to. It won't really matter in the end when I answer to God because I'm covered. But God won't overlook them and they will matter if you're refusing to repent of them. Israel was unrepentant, but religious. And thirdly, That leads to judgment. It leads to judgment. Hosea is full of descriptions of God judging sin. We don't like to hear it, but God's put it here because we need to hear it. So I'm going to give you just a few examples and we'll start with a strange one. Chapter six, verse five. Chapter six, verse five. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flash like lightning upon you. That's odd. How do you cut people in pieces with prophets? How do you kill people with words? Very odd. When I was a boy, we had a PE teacher at school called Mr. Cracknell, and we all feared Mr. Cracknell. And I remember there was an older pupil who could imitate Mr. Cracknell. And I saw a boy who had been up to no good running off down the field. And the older pupil in Mr. Cracknell's voice shouted something like, Smith, come here. And the boy froze and he turned round with a pale face because we all dreaded the words of Mr. Cracknell because we knew 
they were followed up by what he said. He wasn't one of those soft teachers whose bark was worse than his bite, who said one thing and then backed down if you pushed him. We all knew that if Mr. Cracknell said you were in trouble, you really were. And God's words warn of judgment. And it will come unless Israel and we repent. He doesn't back down. And his judgment is like a whirlwind. Let's go back to that famous verse we saw earlier. Chapter eight, verse seven. Chapter eight, verse seven. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Now, we've seen this sowing the wind means trusting in a nothing, as if you just sowed a puff of air and expected a pear tree. They're trusting in sowing a nothing, but it, it will do worse than produce a nothing. That wind will blow back at them as a whirlwind. Now, have you seen on the news? I, I don't I don't remember it being recent, but I'm sure at some time you've seen on the news a tornado has gone through a housing estate in the USA. And there is this stripe of devastation as buildings are torn apart. And so our section of Hosea ends with devastation. Chapter 10, verse 13. Because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors, the roar of battle will rise against your people so that all your forces will be devastated. Fortresses will be devastated. As Shalman devastated Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to the ground with their children. Thus, it will happen to you, O Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. It's, it's a horrible description. Mothers dashed to the ground with their children. But I'm afraid to say that's fairly um, typical of what we read in Hosea. There's a lot more here about judgment, sometimes described shockingly. And so I have to ask you, fellow Christians, do you believe the Bible and how it reveals God? Or have you got your own version that, that glosses over these difficult bits and gives you a God that's more palatable? Do you believe the Bible and how it reveals God, not your own version imposed on the Bible? Or are you like chapter nine, verse seven? You see, it's no new thing to dismiss this sort of message. That isn't just a 21st century problem. Chapter nine, verse seven, the Israelites said, well, the prophet, he's considered a fool. The inspired man, a maniac. It's just ranting. It's just the preacher getting a bit carried away. It's just stories from the past. Maybe you dismiss it this way. Oh, that, that's just Old Testament. It's nasty Old Testament. I'm a Christian covered by grace. And these warnings of judgment, they're nothing to do with me. They're just Old Testament. Well, there are a couple of answers to that, probably more than a couple. One of them is 1 Corinthians 10. And in case you don't know, that's New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells of the Israelites being judged. He reminds they had great privileges and yet God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And then Paul says, and these things happened as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. He's writing to a church. 
He's writing to people who prided themselves on being spiritual and so they would be all right, even though they messed around with the immorality of their society. And he says, no, no, look at Israel and don't dismiss that as long ago. It's an example to you today. Or here's another answer if you say, no, that's nasty Old Testament. Have a look at chapter 10, verse 8. Have you got Hosea 10, verse 8? Very interesting phrase there. When God judges, then they will say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills fall on us. Now, we haven't got mountains around here, but we do have some pretty big rocks, don't we? So go up to outwards, go that way that's opposite Alistair and Muki's house, up to the outwards and then turn left when you get in. And you've got that great big rock, haven't you? And stand there at the bottom of that rock and look up at it and imagine wanting that rock to fall down on you. Imagine wanting that rock to cover you. Well, you'd have to be pretty desperate, wouldn't you? You'd have to be unimaginably desperate. Oh, you say this is nasty stuff, this Old Testament, where God's judgment's so bad, people want rocks to fall on them. But that's just the nasty Old Testament. Well, hang on a minute. Does it ring a bell? Does that phrase ring a bell? It probably does for many of you because Jesus said it in the Gospels. And because you might know it comes up in Revelation also. Revelation chapter six. Let me read you just a few verses. Revelation chapter six, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand the wrath of the lamb? Think of that. The gentle, meek lamb of God who sacrificed himself for us. And yet he has so such fierce wrath against you if you're unrepentant. However much Christian activity you might try to cover that over with. That if you're still unrepentant when he returns, you'd wish the mountains would fall on you. Do you see, Hosea is not just a historical book about the past. It's a warning to us about the future. Jesus is coming back. The lamb who loves his people, but he comes with fierce wrath against any who are refusing to repent. And so here's the last point. Here's the last one. We've had Israel is unrepentant, but religious. But that religion doesn't cover them. There's still leads to judgment. So the obvious last point is simply repent. So repent. The whole book of Hosea is actually a call to repent. It ends with a lovely call to repent in chapter 14. And every so often on the way there, there are descriptions of repentance. And here's one in our passage, chapter 10, verse 12. Let's end with this. A description of repentance in chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness 
on you. Sow righteousness. Now, do you remember what Israel was sowing? Chapter eight, verse seven, sowing the wind. And you remember that meant trusting in nothing, nothingness, trusting in a puff of air. That's what trusting in their idols and sin was like. It was trusting in a nothingness, sowing the wind. But now they're told, sow righteousness. In other words, trust in righteousness. What does it mean to trust in righteousness? Well, in the Old Testament, that meant come back into covenant with God. Trust in his saving righteousness. Stay, stay faithful to his dependable covenant. If they trust their idols and sin, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. But if they trust in God's saving righteousness, of course, we know that means trusting in the righteousness of Jesus to cover us. Well, what do you then reap? Chapter 12 tells you, you then reap the fruit of unfailing love. God's unfailing marriage covenant love to them. That's what they'll reap. Now, you can't do that and cling on to sin. And so they are told. See it there in verse 12. Break up your unplowed ground. Now, this that's a bit like this. I've just referred to going up to um, the outwards opposite Alistair Mukey's house. Opposite their house is a farmer's field. And in the early spring, it's full of weeds. But the farmer doesn't plant his crops, does he, in that field full of weeds? No, first of all, he has to pull up the weeds and plough the ground. And here in verse 12, this is a call to root out sin. Break up the unplowed ground, pull out the weeds, get it ready for God to sow in. Pull up, root out the sin. You don't say to God, I'll come back into marriage covenant with you, but can I bring my lovers with me? No, you need to kick them out of the bed and kick them out of your house. In other words, this part of verse 12 is saying turn from your sin. And then the very next line tells us turn to Christ. Lovely phrase, verse 12 For it is time to seek the Lord. And then notice this until he comes and showers righteousness on you. I don't know if you remember the beginning of chapter six that we looked at a fortnight ago that said almost the same thing. It said, seek the Lord and he will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. There, seek the Lord and he'll come to you like rain. Here, seek the Lord and he'll shower righteousness on you. Do you see it's the same thing? The trouble is, most of us are English. And do you like being rained on? We don't see the attraction in rain, do we? Because we have such a lot of it. But think Middle Eastern thoughts. Think of the Middle East back then or even think of Dubai today. I stopped off on, on a journey to Zambia and Dubai is an amazing place. They've got so much money and they've they've even built themselves new islands in the sea. And they've built the the tallest tower in the world. And they've got these amazing air conditioned plush buildings and they seem like they can do anything, but they can't make it rain. They can't give themselves the refreshment of rain that makes the place spring to life. They're still living in a desert. In other words, chapter 10 and chapter 6 are saying, seek the Lord to do the thing you can't do. 
to refresh you with his righteousness, his love, his spirit working change at the heart level. Or as Jesus said, his spirit like rivers of living water flowing out from you, refreshing you and even refreshing others. Do you see it's saying seek the Lord and he'll give you what you can't give yourself. He'll change you in a way you can't change yourself. This repentance is far from sort yourself out. In fact, that is unrepentance. Verse 13, you have depended on your own strength. Now, don't depend on your own strength to sort yourself out. Break up the fallow ground, root out the sin, but seek the Lord to change you and to refresh you with his righteousness. Sin must be repented of. I hope you've seen the clear answer to the story I set up at the beginning of Pastor Mark visiting Maya, who doesn't want to talk about her sin. And he wonders, is it worth really pressing her? Sin must be repented of. All sins you are aware of must be repented of. That is a necessity. Whoever you are, whatever Christian activity you engage in, whatever your church record is. Without repentance, you cannot claim any safety from God's promises. But this is far from a harsh message. It's saying turn from sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. Turn and seek the Lord. Because he's the one who can refresh you. He can refresh you. With showers of his righteousness. And then you can reap his unfailing love. Well, let's pray for that now. Let's all pray. Father, thank you that we need not depend on our own strength because we can depend on the strength of the risen lamb who was sacrificed for sin. And we thank you that in him forgiveness and salvation are complete. But please, Father, forgive us if we've used this as an excuse for carelessness about repentance. Father, please stop us ever pretending that we have real faith if we don't have real repentance. Instead, Father, may we all honour the Lord Jesus by sowing righteousness, trusting in his righteousness. And may we reap his unfailing love. Father, please help us even this week to break up the unplowed ground and root out the sin and to seek the Lord. And may he refresh us with showers of his righteousness and love poured out on us. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.